You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hello, I'm JR, and once again, I'm with Paul Venezis. After, uh, well, after the conversation we were having last week, rather overran and spilled over into a second podcast. Hello, Paul, and welcome back, and thank you for your time. Hi there, no problem. Right, last week, I started off by asking you a question about which came first, getting into the idea of working in television or getting into the idea of lost films and the like. And we had kind of a sliding doors moment, at which point the conversation went off into the subject of your television career. So this week, we're reconvened to talk about, well, films, film collecting, missing episodes, Doctor Who, DVD production, restoration, and all the rest of it. Well, let's go back to the start again, to when you were a kid, or when you were maybe getting slightly older but I suppose the first thing that's relevant would maybe be uh, possibly when you found out about the missing episodes of Doctor Who and well okay here's the question is that what piqued your interest in film collecting television that kind of stuff I I think so Um, I'd always been interested in in archive of all sorts. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've got a, bit, a big interest in photography and I collect um, glass negatives, Victorian glass negatives. Um, oh, right, yeah. Which, which, which I think are uh, just incredible things. Um, and, uh, but I mean, I think really my interest in physically trying to um, put together a small collection of film um, really started with discovering that that um, films had been lost in the first place and when I you know when I say I'm a film collector I mean I'm not I don't collect um, feature films uh, unless I particularly want to buy a DVD or a blu-ray or something like that <laughs> um, I, I, really what I'm interested in is is um, examples of lost British TV and right specifically uh, that then yeah yes I you know I'm not I'm not going to buy um, Tom and Jerry cartoons or (laughs) Abbott and Costello or Charlie Chaplin or anything like that Uh, I'm I'm principally interested in in television film and um, back in the day there, there were I guess actually not really that many people who physically collect physically collected that kind of stuff um film collectors are not people who are particularly interested in television film uh, particularly film recordings because film recordings are mostly black and white and they're quite poor quality compared to um 
uh, I don't know, an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, that's a good example. Yeah, yeah. Because because I met a film collector once who was very keen to sell me um, an episode of 30 Minute Theatre uh, and an episode of Pardon the Expression for about 40 quid, which 20 quid each, it's not bad. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, because, because he was much more interested in, in his episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, which were beautiful prints, he said, and in, and glorious, really good colour, strong colour. Um, that's how, when you speak to these, I mean, this was a guy from Leeds, lovely chap, um, almost stone deaf, so he almost deafened us because he cranked the volume of his projector up to show us why this film. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and, and loved the whole idea of being able to see something in high definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a Doctor Who film recording or the 30 minute theater or pardon the expression is not high definition by any stretch. <laughs> no. Um, so, so that's, so I was kind of the opposite to that really. I was interested in finding these things um, because I discovered Doctor Who was missing and then in doing my you know, initial research into that and being frankly um, quite, ang <laughs> quite angry about it. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, then discovered it wasn't just Doctor Who, that was just the tip of the iceberg and, and lots of other things were lost. So, um, so, how, so old, really that... how old were you roughly when you started looking into these things? Is this still when you were a, a lad or is this when you were slightly older? It must have been about 1981, 81, 82. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, then... Feature films were, uh, a new feature film wouldn't see uh, the TV screen for years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Star Wars took three years, I think. Uh, four, no, almost five years to get onto ITV. Um, so uh, you, you had to wait to, like, video just didn't exist. There was no such thing yeah. as, home, as home video, not really. Um, uh, not till probably 1980, 81, um, and, and everything was rented, you know, no one bought their video recorders, they would rent them, and your TV was probably rented as well. People didn't just go out and buy these things, they just, re you know, radio rentals on, <laughs> on the high street was, was everywhere, you know, they were the yeah, yeah. people. Um, people would rent their television. And every now and then they'd just upgrade them for a new one because they went wrong, because they had valves in and tubes and and transistors and these things were not reliable and i think people forget that that um uh, the consumer society that we're in now is a very different place to the, or a very different world really to the world that we lived in in the late 70s and early 80s so um and and again i think that that's also what got me fascinated about about meeting film collectors because they bypassed the television screen <laughs> completely and they made their own entertainment by exchanging films between each other. So briefly, when you watch something that you're projecting, is the experience really that utterly different from watching it on the telly? Well, I think it is. Yeah. But it, but don't, you've got to bear in mind that 
as a film collector, me as a film collector, I am not a typical film collector. Yeah. Because I don't have a projector. I don't <laughs> buy these I don't buy these things to project them. I mean that's the last thing I would do. If you project something, you've got a danger of damaging it. <laughs> yeah, in a million years yeah. I wouldn't dream of projecting any film. I'm just I don't have a projector. Um, and I and if I did have a projector I would be very reluctant to put a prized film on it in, for fear of damaging it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's exactly what, what happened with Gordon Hendry and um, and the Faces Ones episode three. When he bought that film originally, it was undamaged. Right, yes. So he 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 learnt very quickly when he projected that film what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um it's a shame he didn't, he didn't, I mean now of course um, Gordon is one of the few people in the country probably that I would trust with um, if I had a particularly prized film that I would trust with a film to project. He's um, learned his lesson. He kind of has, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and he, he's an expert and he's been doing it a lot, a lot longer than I have so he knows, he knows the score. Um, so um, so yeah, so no, the, the films I, I, I've got, first of all, if anything, anything missing comes my way, and that has happened on one or two occasions, then uh, if it's BBC, it goes to the archive. Um, and uh, like last weekend, uh, I, uh, I went to collect a film that I bought on eBay. The seller wanted £100, I offered 25 she accepted straight away. I went to <laughs> collect the film, and that's now in London. And I cleaned it. It's in London, and it will go back to the BBC. It's not a lost program, but it's a film element that they don't have, which right, means yeah. that they'll they, they they can breathe more life into that particular program, which is an episode of Horizon, and that's from uh, it was made in eighty nine, shown in nineteen ninety. So that's... we are talking. Ridiculously yeah. recently, really. It is, yes, and um, and the re and the reason that they didn't have the film was because the, uh, the that particular episode of Horizon was made by an independent producer, an independent production company. Right. And in those days, they the indie made the program, but the BBC owned all the rights. Yeah. So so the BBC still own all the rights to that program. The indie, but but the indie was only um, required to deliver to the BBC a broadcast videotape, yeah, and not the film. And somehow the film ended up uh, through a deceased um, estate auction with this lady down in the southwest, and um, and I bought it. Wow, twenty five quid, and I won't get the, the twenty five quid back from the BBC, sadly. Um, <laughs> But you know that's that's just the way it is. Well, that's brilliant. You, what was okay? Going back again, we seem to be going forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the way of it. So what? Uh, what was when you first started collecting? Then what were the kind of things that you would be buying? You know, right back at the very start. And how long was it? You know, you've said once or twice you've come across missing things. What would have been the first thing that was missing that you were able to, you know, get back, as it were? Um, I think the, f the first film that I bought, uh, 
I actually bought from Christopher Perry, who now look, uh, runs, up, runs Kaleidoscope. And it was an oh, episode yeah, yeah. of Coronation Street. And um, uh, it was quite a nice episode of Coronation Street. It was a nice print. Uh, I had no way of knowing it was a nice print when I bought it off him. He just told me it was, and it was. It was in good condition. Um, it was missing some of the opening titles and, and some of the closing credits, and it didn't have the adverts in. Mm. But um, it was a nice print, and it had um, Kenneth Cope was in it. I think it was from 1963. Really? Wow. So, yeah, so it's a quite a nice episode. And and I don't know whether you know, but, but um, uh, Granada film prints of TV episodes that were made on videotape are quite um, difficult to get hold of. Yeah. Um, they're just not around. So to find a, 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 good, a good condition episode of Coronation Street of the many um, was, was quite nice. Um, so I bought it really as a curiosity um, because Coronation Street is, is a TV series that I can't personally stand. Um, <laughs> but, but that is not a barrier to me wanting to have uh, an example of it, um, yeah. an early example of it. Um, but the, the, I think the first thing that was missing was that, that I got back to the archive. It wasn't something that I bought. It was uh, something that I found in um, our film cupboard at uh, Newport Film School when I was a student at Newport Film School in this would have been in 1988 that um, I found this particular film and one of the other students who was a first-year student I was a second-year student um, had gone to the cupboard and was rifling through um, and found this film and wondered what it was and put it on the steam deck and uh, and I was in sit in the room as well, um, not particularly paying any attention to what they were doing. Yeah. And um, and then he turned to me and said, uh, "Paul, why is there a clock here and not a film countdown?" And yeah. I looked over, <laughs> and there was a VT, a VT clock on on the Steam Deck screen. And I said, and I looked at the title, didn't recognise it. And I said, "Look, do not play it anymore <laughs> any further, <laughs> because again." An important film like that, I yeah, yeah. absolutely would not put on a Steam Deck. I've seen, I've worked with Steam Decks, and when they go wrong, they decimate. A, they can decimate a film. Wow. Um, so uh, I got him to wind it off very quickly, having noted down the details on the clock, and then I just contacted Adam Lee at the BBC Archive, um, and uh, it was called the Scrumpian Western Show. <laughs> Never even heard of it. Well, no, neither had I, and neither had Adam Lee. Uh, and he, he said, I think it's probably a regional programme because it was. It, um, uh, yeah, yeah. When he eventually got the film to look <clears throat> at it, he said, it's a, it's a, it says BBC West on the end, so I think it's a regional programme, but I'll do a bit of, bit of research. And anyway, um, it appeared that actually it was a pilot. Um, a kind of entertainment show vehicle for Adge Cutler and the Wurzels. Um, wow. And the, blue, and the Blue Notes starred in it, and um, it was a pilot, but it was transmitted on the network. And so he made a negative and mags, whatever, yeah. of, of, of the print that I'd sent him. And then he sent me the film back. 
which I was highly amused by because I wasn't interested in keeping the film. Um, but but actually, the, the film was was very unusual because not only was it a missing program, and it was made in Bristol, but networked, and it was a pilot. The film recording itself, the actual physical film, um, the actual physical film was the the film that was in the film recorder. It wasn't. There was never a negative. It was a film recording positive. Right. And it was made uh, uh, just to view. It was made as a, as a, yeah, as yeah, a viewing yeah. film, as if you'd, just the, the same way that you would make a, VH, a VHS um, tape. Yeah. And they're very rare. They don't come up very often because having been made and viewed, then they would just be thrown away. And this was meant to have been thrown away. And uh, I, I remember speaking to um, one of our lecturers, um, Cyril Moorhead, um, who used to be the cameraman on Wicker's <clears throat> World and then became the film unit manager at BBC Bristol and asked him about this film. And he said, oh, that was one of the films that was being thrown out uh, from BBC Bristol years ago. And I just, <laughs> I just brought it to the college because I thought it might be useful for people to use a spacer. Oh, um, God. Yeah. So and no one had ever cut it up. <laughs> so... Fortunately. Um, yeah. And it was an absolutely pristine print. So I, it, was a, it was a mystery to me why Adam didn't want to put it into the main archive because it was absolutely the, perf the best thing to have. It was perfect quality, amazing quality. It was like it was the quality of a negative, but as a print. And, um, and so when I was back at the BBC and I know this was, only, this was, this was in the last 10 years, um, I just gave it back to the BBC archive and said, look, this really should be in the archive and I think you ought to have it. So that was the first missing programme that I, I physically returned. Just on a um, sort of a side note there, I mean, this is perhaps something that we would have talked about anyway, but I mean, this is the perfect opportunity now. Something like that, that's probably never going to be repeated and probably never going to be, you know, issued on DVD or whatever. Potentially, I suppose, it could end up in the BBC store when that comes online. But that's something that's not only unique, but, uh, you know, the Wurzels, the Blue Notes, is that not just unique, but it's also potentially, of, you know, a certain amount of interest to a lot of people. Do you find yeah. that with some of these missing things, it's perhaps a bit frustrating that you're getting things back to the archives just in a sort of, you know, that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where there's all that stuff locked up in that dusty room. And is that frustrating knowing you're getting these things back and knowing that, you know, there's a good chance with probably a lot of them that they'll never really be seen? I, no, I don't. I don't. See, I personally don't see it like that. I mean, there, there may be other people that do, but, but I'm not one of them. I think the, the thing about um, an archive is that it can't be made use of if there is no archive material to make use of. Yes, exactly, so, yeah. So um, in about 1994, 1995, 1996, around about that period, um, you suddenly started getting lots of archive programmes on the BBC that were making use of, of lots of archive. Right, yeah. Um, 
the I love the whatever, the I love the 70s and whatever. <clears throat> um, now, do you know why that was? Do you know why there was sudden interest? Well, you're going why to tell the, me. Why those programs <laughs> well, I am going to tell you. The reason was <laughs> the BBC had, in 1992, 93, um, started the two-inch archiving project where all two-inch material was transferred to D3 digital tape. Got you, yeah. Um, so suddenly all of this content, which was becoming more and more, more and more difficult to use because there was, there weren't very two inch machines. There was one two inch machine in Birmingham. There was probably one in Manchester. There was probably one in Glasgow. Um, there were two or three left over at um, Television Centre and the rest were at Windmill Road. Um, so you had to book time on those machines. People didn't. You couldn't visual search through through a two-inch tape. You had to know what you wanted off the tape and how far into the tape it was for you to get it. Um, so as soon as all this content suddenly became available, viewing viewing copies became available. Uh, people were able to see it. They came up with the ideas. Programs were made, and the archive was used. Yeah. I suppose it's one of those things where as soon as you see this stuff, you suddenly realise the value in it, whereas previously it's kind of a bit out of sight, out of mind almost, I suppose. Yeah, but that's exactly right. And um, the same thing happened um, uh, with some film content and high-definition content. Um, so there's, 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 a, there's a bizarre situation now where... Um, some archive material has been transferred at the BBC um, to high definition. Mm. So it's been transferred from the film and it's on, on HD tape. And in theory, it is available for use. However, because they've made only one HD tape, not two, not one for the archive and not one for viewing, just one for the archive, you're yeah. not, you, you can't order the tape. Um, if you want to use that material, you've got your program has got to pay to have a copy made. So uh, yeah. no one uses it. <laughs> They'll use the DigiBeta and upconvert it. Yeah. And that, to me, is not a sensible use of the archive. That it's what they're doing is they're preserving, but not making available. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I suppose that's well. Partly short-sightedness and partly money-saving measures. Well, you know, if I was in charge, it would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, I've, of course, the argument, the reverse argument is, I don't understand the economics. So, well, yeah, yeah, I guess. Speaking of you being in charge of things, though, OK, so this is perhaps something that you're not technically in charge of, but over the years, you have become the man who is synonymous with the search specifically for Missing Doctor Who. Right, go back to the very first time you actually got involved in the search for Doctor Who. What happened? And, you know, sort of tell me the story of how you've sort of been involved in this particular search over the years. Well, because you've actually... Hmm. Yeah, go on. No, I'll, I'll leave it to you. I think... Um... I mean, I've, I've said this before, but, but the, um, the Doctor Who Winter Special, 1981, I read that. Um, 
I was just disgusted, really. Yeah. And um, uh, because it outlined what was left in the archive and what we'd lost. And um, that suddenly, you know, Sue Molden became a hero uh, and the BBC, you know, you couldn't knock the BBC. You had to, you had to understand. I was just angry that it happened in the first place. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. I was pleased that there was somebody there that was trying to do something about it. So um, I had mixed, I had mixed feelings about it. But the, the overriding feeling was, was firstly anger, and then um, uh, I, I joined the Doctor Appreciation Society literally at the beginning, at the end of '81. So my membership began at the beginning of '82. Um, and very quickly, on the headlines in the Celestial Toy Room newsletter that was monthly, um, was the abominable snowman has been found, episode two, and this episode's been found, and these episodes have been recovered. And it actually, yeah. over, that period, over that short period of time, through 1982 and 1983, lots of episodes seemed to be being found. I suppose. Did and they, then do you was, think that? Do you think that issue of the magazine actually was perhaps responsible for some of that by making people aware of it? No, it was just um, coincidence. It kind of, it kind of was. I mean, it coincided with it with Ian Levine's search, really, and him, yeah. him being, uh, you know, steam coming out of his ears and <laughs> uh, at, at BBC Enterprises and, and stamping his feet and causing a fuss. Um, and, um, but all respect to him for doing that. Otherwise, the situation course, yeah. may have got worse before it got better. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he, Ian was a great hero of mine. Yeah. Um, you know, I always wanted to meet him because he'd found all of these things. Yeah. And so, um, uh, but I never thought I'd, I'd ever be able to do anything about it. Um, but then I thought oh, they're talking about episodes being abroad. And I've got connections in Cyprus, so I'll write to Cyprus TV. So I wrote to Cyprus Television in, I think it was October 84. Um, and they replied within a few weeks. Uh, and and that, that, was an, that was an incredible thing, really, incredible feeling to read the letter and to actually not understand whether or not I'd found anything missing because I didn't know what serial H was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had, I had to go and get my um, my copy of the Doctor Who program, program guide. guide, yeah, um, and have a look in there. Um, so I had the letter in front of me, which listed thirteen episodes that were still in Cyprus, um, and uh, and the program guide, and I checked it, and I just I couldn't believe it. Um, well, we'd I better say couldn't... we'd better say for anybody listening. What serial age was then? It was the Reign of Terror. Uh, One of my favourites, last... Paul, of yeah. series one. So I've got to personally thank you for that. Yeah, well, th thank you, thank you very much. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I mean I was absolutely not interested at that stage in um, in returning those films to the BBC because I didn't have them. Yeah. What I was interested in was watching them. That right. was the thing that interested me the most. I wanted to see them. Um, and so I didn't ring up the BBC. Uh, I, I rang up my dad who was in Cyprus and said, 
can you go and see this guy at the TV <laughs> station and see if you can buy the films off him? Um, I don't know how much you'll want for them, but you know, I've got a bit of money saved. Um, but the guy at the TV station, Mr. Yanides, was just, he did everything by the book. And uh, uh, he said, no, if you, you can have the films, but only if the BBC gives you a letter allowing me to let you have them. But right. then he said, we don't want any money for them because we don't own them. You can just have them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, so I kept in contact with him. And then I got a letter from him out of the blue saying, oh, actually, we've returned these films to the BBC. About a month, about a month, no, it was a bit, it was, it was about six weeks later, or seven weeks later, I think. Yeah. And um, How times have changed. That would all be done in yeah. about half an hour these days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing was, the BBC were contacting people by telex, and I was contacting people by letter. So yeah. I think we've worked out that I beat the BBC by four or five weeks in actually tracking them down. So, yeah. But even so, that's quite an achievement. I mean, just for, I mean, I know you'd been in film school and such, so you weren't, you know, an absolute ingenue, but... Well, actually, no, been... I, hadn't, I hadn't been to film school then. Um, oh, no, 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 of course to... not, yeah. Yeah, I didn't go to film school till 87. So, um, but... I mean, I, I didn't just write to Cyprus, I wrote to lots of places. I only had two replies. And the second one was from uh, Televisia SA in um, Mexico. And they had all their films as well. So I'd found most of the first two seasons of Doctor Who, including three lost episodes. Yeah. Um, uh, but all of the ones from Mexico were dubbed into Spanish. Right, yeah. But they did have the films. Um, and Steve Bryant was really interested in those films because his feeling was that some of the prints that they got, they didn't have negatives for all the episodes that they had. Uh, and some of the prints they got were slightly damaged. And his feeling was that if they could get back those other films, there may well be better quality um, prints amongst them and so I sent him all the details but I don't think when he checked the list I mean basically they had they had with the exception of Marco Polo and the Reign of Terror they had everything up to and including the chase um, so uh, Molesworth got the letter I think uh, the original letter. so <laughs> yeah. you'd have to ask you'd have to ask him exactly what the, the episode titles were but yeah I think that's pretty much uh, yeah what what they were yeah so uh, going on from there you kind of became more and more involved with the bbc to the point at which you you kind of you're kind of their go-to guy when it comes to this stuff does that go hand well, in no 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 that's not no that's not true um uh at the t not at the time no that i was just another one of the people that wrote to steve bryant and adam lee yeah, yeah. Um, the difference was that I was every now and then giving them back a piece of film. You know, it wasn't I wasn't right, giving yeah. them back a film a month. You know, it was every couple of years I might find something interesting and send it to them. And sometimes it was of real interest and it was a missing thing. And sometimes it was just a spare copy that would go into the archive. Um, you know, we, we're not talking about a huge volume of material here. Yeah, we're talking about. Um, you know, literally a handful of, of titles. Um, what made a, a massive difference 
to the perception of of the BBC archive of me was when I went back to Cyprus in 1989 um, because it mystified me why they'd only asked for Doctor Who. I said to Steve Bryant, yeah, I was just going to say, and what else did they what else did they have? And he said, well, we've only asked for about Doctor Who. And I said, well, don't you think there might be other things there? And he said, well, you know. Not really. Not there won't. There's unlikely to be anything of real interest. I said, but have you asked them? And he said, no. But he didn't then say, I then will. You know, I will do something about it. He didn't. Um, and um, I'm not. I don't want to be rude about about Steve, but he did it again actually uh, when I I went back to um, back to Cyprus and found another 200 films, <laughs> BBC programmes. Um, you know, the first seven episodes of Zed Cars, another five from the second series, they were all missing. Um, a whole wow. series of, of Bleak House from 1959, the entire series, which was missing, all of that. Um, wow. Episodes of Katie, uh, there was a Francis Durbridge series called The Desperate People, which actually the BFI have got the, the 35mm original, original content, original films, but the BBC had nothing. Um, and if the BBC, the BBC would not be able to get back those 35 mil films. They've donated them to the BFI. Right. The BFI have got them now and they're going to keep them. So if Did the you BBC actually... wanted them... Sorry, sorry, go on. No, I was, I was going to say if the BBC wanted them, they would have to um, uh, yeah. Ask the buy, the, buy copies back. Yeah. So they were quite happy to have the 16 mils. And there were all sorts of other little odds and sods there as well. I mean, there was all of... Andy Pandy from the 50s and Captain wow. Paul Wash in the 50s. All of that was there. Did you actually go in person then? Yes. Oh, yeah. What, yeah. When you walked into it, well, I mean, assuming you walked into a huge room and you must have been walking along, spotting things, and as you were walking deeper into the room, spotting more and more. Well, what was the actual experience of being in that room and seeing this stuff like? And well, there, you... were, there were two things about it. The first, The first thing was um, uh, the gentleman I saw, was his name was Andreas Georgiades. Um, he had been there since the 60s. Wow. Um, and so he'd been there for 30 years. And he was the guy who had made all the notes about film coming in and coming out. So he'd got these ledgers which he could just look in that uh, book and tell me instantly what 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 films uh, if like we went to the Doctor Who pages and because I wanted to know what had happened to because um, I he 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 basically the letter I got from the, from Cyprus in eighty four had only talked about Doctor Who F G and H which was the Aztecs the Sensorites and the Reign of Terror yeah and I said to him okay. I know about F, G, and H, but what happened to um, A, B, C, D, and E? What happened to them? And what happened to um, F, episode two, which wasn't there, and H, four, and five? What happened yeah, to them? Yeah. Um, so he was able to tell me all of that, of what had happened to the films, just by looking in the book. So what um, had happened to them, Paul? Well, um, A, B, and C had been sent to um, Uganda, um, D and E had been sent to Hong Kong Rediffusion yeah. um, Broadcaster. Um, F2 
and H4 and 5 were in a different um, vault. We'll call it a vault. Yeah. In, in reality, it was just a it was just a kind of a room, um, and it had been destroyed. He'd put red crosses next to them, and there were lots of red crosses in this ledger. Um, and anything with a red cross had been in this particular room uh, on the site of the television station. It, it had been shelled during the Civil War wow. um, in '74, which had preempted the um, uh, uh, the, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. That must have been so depressing to hear about. Well, at least we got th three yeah, <laughs> of, the, yeah. of the six back. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, he was more concerned about the entire archive of, 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 of the film archive of Cyprus, the cultural archive, yeah, had been yeah, destroyed yeah. at the same time. It, because right, that, right. actually, the Doctor Who films shouldn't have been in that room. They should have been with all the imported stuff. Hmm. But they weren't because of space, I guess. Um, so yeah, yeah, destroyed. So, um, so he first of all he showed me around all of this stuff, and then I told him about the Doctor Who's and that I'd originally written, and I said I want to go where those films were found. And he said, Oh, <laughs> you're ta you're talking about going going into the grave. The grave. Said, the grave, yeah. He said, no one wants to go there. He said, it's horrible. But he said, look, it's, I'm busy today, but if you come back on Thursday, um, then I will we'll go to the grave and you can make your notes. And so I went back on Thursday. And you've got to bear in mind that, that I was staying in Larnaca, which is on the south coast, uh, and, and the TV station was in Nicosia, the capital. Yeah. So it was quite a big deal. Um, uh, it wasn't a particularly long drive, but it was quite a big deal for, for my dad to drive me all the way there and then find something to do uh, all <laughs> yeah. day while I was in the archive. Um, uh, and also I wanted to take him a gift, so I took him a bottle of whiskey. Right, uh, yeah. Because I wanted him on my side. And so I, I took him, went in and gave him a bottle, put the bottle of whiskey in his hand and he looked a bit suspicious and... <laughs> under his desk and then said come with come with me and um and we went down into the grave and um it's it's the possibly the most disgusting room i've ever been in really apart from apart from a room that i was in in manchester on a shoot once <laughs> but this was bad i mean it it stank of vinegar um there was mold everywhere uh it was dark. There was just literally, imagine a single light bulb hanging from a, a, a cloth power cord. It's exactly what it was like. Wow. Um, it was hideous. But I got my notebook with me and my pen, and we went through all of the film that was lying on the ground. Um, found the Zed Cars films, two of them, from I think from the second series. The lids of the cans had blown off because mold had started to grow on the surface of the film oh dear um so th they were in a pr pretty poor state and he said oh these are gone we'll throw them and i said no 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 don't do that keep keep those because he was just literally on there and then was going to just pick them up and put them in the bin wow and i said no 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 they, they'll be able to do something with those films i said i didn't know whether they could but i said look they'll be able to do something with them because i didn't know they were missing and um and then um, 
basically went through everything. But but then I also found a rack of about 60 episodes of Armchair Theatre. Um, didn't write the titles down because it kind of wasn't really my interest. Um, and also you were up I, against the clock as well, I suppose, in a way. I kind of was, really. But I, it wasn't really my interest at, the, at that time. Yeah. Um, but I made a note of, of how many cans were there. There was... I think there were exactly 60 and um, uh, and I thought okay the person I'll speak to about that is Steve Bryant because he's now the keeper of television at the BFI yeah yeah um, so I'll speak to him about it um, and then I, I got when I got back to Larnaca I called Adam Lee and told him where I'd been and what I'd found and he didn't believe me I mean apart from, <laughs> apart from anything he, he didn't even believe I was calling from Cyprus because the line was so clear <laughs> <laughs> he thought I was calling from the UK. Um, but I, I, I said to him, no, no, I'm in Cyprus and this is, this is what, I've done, what I've found. And he said, oh, which episodes of Zed Cars are they? Because I'd be very much interested in getting those. And um, uh, I told him and he said, oh, well, those are all missing shows. We haven't got any of those. Wow. So that was quite a good feeling. But it took another year for them to get those films back because the... Um, they were quite difficult, actually. They were very bureaucratic Yeah. in Cyprus. Um, their argument was that they, they still had the rights to screen them. And actually, that turned out to be not the case. And, and I actually went back myself to speak to them. And the person I spoke to said, you're not a representative of the BBC, yeah. uh, of the B of BBC Enterprises. You're a member of the BBC. And we're dealing only with BBC Enterprises because they sold us the films. Yeah, yeah. So then I then I had to very quickly make a few phone calls and I then became the BBC Enterprises representative in Cyprus overnight, <laughs> um, which surprised them. But nevertheless, that happened. But they still refused. Yeah. They said, look, there's no way you're going to be able to take any of these films with you because I'd, I'd basically arranged to... Um, for a freight company yeah. to collect the films and to, um, to, to to remove them and to freight them directly back to, to the BBC in London. Uh, they were having none of that. It did all eventually happen, but it took a lot longer. Um, but I was, uh -huh. quite, I was quite pleased to have found, found all of that stuff anyway. But Steve Bryant um, never chased up the armchair theatres. Seriously? I, I asked him several times over several years, and he didn't do anything about it. So, so you're not telling me they're potentially still there, surely? No, 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 no. I've checked, and they're gone. They were thrown. Are so, you kidding? Uh, no. And I was standing next to them. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before, but you know, the sim, the sim. If I wanted to absolutely guarantee to get those films out of that room. I should have just bribed them. Yeah, yeah. That would have been the only way to guarantee to get hold of them. Crikey. Well, there's two two interesting things that have come up there. And the first is that you're starting to build your relationships within the BBC and within, you know, the various archives and stuff. But but perhaps more pertinently, is this the moment at which an interest in actual restoration starts to raise its head perhaps? Um, I, I mean, I'd all, I'd always wanted to um, 
get things in better quality. Yeah. You know, when 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 everybody else was buying VHS machines, I was buying a Umatic machine. Right. Uh, yes. Because because it was better quality. I mean, it wasn't much better quality, but it had the edge over VHS. Yeah. Um, so quality w- was something that I was always interested in. Um, and then when I when I joined the BBC and started working with um, in the videotape department, yeah, it, um, I was suddenly working with broadcast quality, and <laughs> yeah, the difference between a VHS and broadcast quality is kind of Which amazing. Is insane, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, people don't really understand that now. Um, because now, if you go and buy um, a, a digital camcorder, you're getting sometimes, well, you're getting certainly better quality than standard definition by a long way. So, um, just on a camcorder. So, um, that, again, that shows how technology has kind of moved moved on. So, no, I don't think I was particularly interested in, in restoration that stage. I mean, that came maybe three years, two or three years later, yeah. where I got a lot more interested in, in um, improving the quality of things and trying to work out how things could be improved. And um, when I first met, uh, yeah, I first met Steve Roberts and Rafe Montague in 92. And, um, and Rafe was uh, kind of, really was trying, was spearheading, I think, the, the relationship between what was the fledgling restoration team um, and the archive, yes. and Adam Lee had given them quite a bit of money to do the colour restorations, uh, which which were going to be broadcast on TV. So it was it was it was worth spending the money. And I did my own colour restoration um, around that time um, uh, with uh, episode six of the Time Monster. So again. My my interest in 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 quality, um, that was a good example of where I I thought I could improve things. Yeah. Um, I knew there was a black and white um, ep- copy of episode six of the Time Monster, um, but it was still the original video recording, just in black and white, um, and it was six two five, and all the other copies. The ones that were being repeated were these jittery five two five conversions, quartz yeah, yeah. standards converted copies. Uh, very poor quality, really. Um, arguably, poorer quality than VHS than sixty five VHS. So, um, so I my first attempt was was to having an understanding of how uh, of, of of the beta cam format, um, taking the the, the, the two um, color component feeds from the color tape and super superimposing it over the um, over the black and white picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and it worked quite well. I didn't I didn't have a particularly good transfer of um, of the Time Monster tape. It was it had been transferred on our two inch machine in Birmingham, which didn't have the right cards to play high band, um, sorry, low band uh, black and white tape. Um, so it was quite a smeary copy, but it kind of did the, did the job for a while. Um, it proved what could be achieved. Yeah, 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 um, exactly. 
Um, and I did put it into the archive purely j just because I didn't want it to get wiped. I thought I'll put it there because no one will no one will use it, um, and uh, and I'll know where it is, and I'll just be able to order it as and when I, I need it. Yeah. And then it turned up on UK Gold, which was a bit. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't really. It wasn't really good enough for broadcast. It really wasn't. Um, the NTSC would have been better, but they used it. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I was well, slightly embarrassed by that. I suppose but, their um, thinking was, hey, it's in colour, we'll use that one. Well, they had it in colour anyway from the 525 conversions. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. Was mystified. I was mystified as to why they'd used it, but anyway, they did. But um, So I did that, and then uh, I had been trained to use a device called a Charisma, which is a, um, a digital video effects uh, device, um, which we used a lot on Top Gear, at the time on Network right, East, yeah. on the closed show, um, and it allowed you to manipulate the picture and turn it into a ball and bounce it around the screen. You could also reshape uh, the TV picture with it. So I used it on uh, an off-air recording um, of Terror of the Autons. Um, I'd had it converted um, back to PAL 625, yeah. and uh, I took the colour and superimposed it with a black and white um, film print copy of, Ter Ter of the first episode of Terror of the Autons yeah. and it was remarkable to see it working. It was incredible. Um, and, um, and this was before I really knew um, Steve and Rafe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then to discover, because I spoke to Adam Lee about it and he said, oh, you ought to speak to Steve Roberts and Rafe Montague because they're doing similar things down in London. And um, so I, I briefly corresponded with Steve, I think. But then we met at the Dot Two convention, the Panopticon, in 1992. We met there for the first time. That's where I first met Steve. And um, yeah, it was it was very interesting. Very and interesting uh, chatting to him and talking, you know, throwing bashing ideas around and throwing ideas around and um, and coming up with, you know wish lists of what we thought might be possible yeah yeah, yeah. and i suppose that each of you would bring in different you know different techniques into bear as well so actually put the three of you together and you know that's going to make a massive improvement potentially yeah yeah i mean R rafe had um was was a graphic designer really um uh, i wasn't an engineer i was an editor but, but I had a good understanding of, of um, editing PAL uh, content um, and we worked in, in, in an entirely PAL environment so we, and we needed to have an understanding of that. But I also had an understanding of component video editing as well, yeah. um, which was essential to, to make the colour restorations from off-air colour sources work. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't really involved in the actual colour restorations that we'd done for the broadcasts. I wasn't involved in those at all. Um, the, the, I, was, I was responsible for putting together the TX, the new TX masters for the 1999 and 2000 repeats. I was responsible for those. Yeah. Um, but, not, but not for the, um, the 1992 ones. Um, yeah. So let's rewind a bit and go off at a slight tangent. 
your first uh, brush with Doctor Who in the sell-through market, I think, is the Five Doctors Special Edition. Is that right? Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. So how did that? So how did that come about? Well, myself and Rafe decided to put together a database of what was in the BBC archive and what we knew was in the hands of collectors. Right, yes, so, of course, yeah. So, ra so rather, than, rather than do things piecemeal, we wanted our own database which brought everything together. So at the time, the BBC archive had two systems, um, uh, FLOL and VTOL. Um, and they, they sound, you know, quite nice names, but it's typical, they're just acronyms really. It's, uh, yeah. VTOL was videotape online and FLOL was film library online. And if you wanted to find out what was, what film holdings there were for um, Terror of the Zygons and you were in the VTOL screen, you couldn't just look at one screen and see all the content. You had to then look right. for the videotape, find out what the video, what videotape was, and then go to the film screen and find out what film was there. And most people didn't even look and see what film was there. So we pretty much for the first time went through and looked and started to discover that there were film inserts and film recordings that were not known about and all that kind of thing. Um, so we built up a database, which we've maintained to this day, of that kind of content. And we added to that um, any other copies that we knew to exist. So Ian Levine's collection, other film collectors' uh, collections, uh, we put it all into that, into that database. And it meant that, for, certainly for the next 20 years, we had um, uh, an online... Um, constantly changing database um, of Doctor Who only content. Yeah. Um, and during that inventory, let's call it, um, we discovered that all of the five Doctors recordings were there. I mean, we also discovered all of the two Doctors recordings were there, except they weren't there for very long, about a month after we <laughs> I printed it all out, they were wiped. So um, no, yeah. Well, I mean, the the material wasn't there to be kept. It was it yeah, was transitory no. material. It was never intended to be to be kept. Um, and people moan and whinge about it, but you know you can't keep everything that's made no. to to make a TV show. It would be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you know we want it because we're we're anorak Doctor Who fans and yeah, we're, we're yeah, anal yeah. about it. You know. So. Um, uh, but what, what it meant was that, that we knew the Five Doctors material was there and we knew all the film was there, although, curiously, not the transmission print or the TX mag. So, um, but, but there was an answer print and there was a safety mag and the negatives were there. So we knew we could do something with the Five Doctors and um, uh, that was 93. And then in 94, I kind of pitched it. Um, Rafe did an introduction uh, for me to Sue Kerr and I pitched it to Sue, and it wasn't really the right time. But then a year later, they came back and said, actually, now is a good time, and um, uh, what's, what's your idea? 
and I told them what I wanted to do and they, they said, okay, um, here's £12,000, go and make it. Wow. And, that, and so that's, that's what happened. Um, yeah. In a way then, is that your sort of foot in the door in terms of, because it's, after that it's quite a while before the DVD thing comes around. So are any of the same people there or by the time DVD comes around, you and Steve and Rafe and the others, are you having to sort of make your introductions again, as it were? Not really. What, what happened was we did the Five Doctors. It was very successful. And... Yeah. Um, I think that had surprised them and they were quite interested in doing other special editions but they weren't doing a particularly good job of um, uh, the PR side of it wasn't wasn't great particularly I mean what happened with how the restoration team effectively took control over looking after um, the archive of Doctor Who on video yeah um, I had a meeting with, with Sue just to talk about um, Bottom Fluff, I think, uh, which we made in 1996, yeah. the end of 96. And it would, this would have been in probably early 1997. I was in London, I'd arranged to see Sue. And she, she said, oh, Paul, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm, can I just show you a letter? Just tell me what you think about it. I want to see if this guy's got a point. And it was a it was a letter from someone who had bought um, the second release VHS release of Death to the Daleks, and on the front cover it said complete and unedited, and it was not complete and unedited. It it, it was edited majorly, um, and um, in fact it was less complete than the omnibus version that they put out previously. So. Um, and this guy basically said, you said it was complete and unedited, it isn't. Um, I paid for something that was complete and unedited, so I want you to send me a complete and unedited copy. <laughs> <laughs> what did she say and to I, that then? <laughs> she said, does he have a point? And I said, well, he does have a point. I wouldn't, I think it's not realistic for him to expect us to no. deliver him a personal copy. However, he does have a point. And she said, well, how has it happened? And I said, well, look, where are you getting your, your, your tapes from? And she said, well, and then Ingrid Taylor was there who used to look after the, the Doctor Who, did a brilliant job of, of, of get, put, put, she did a brilliant job of um, removing the next episode captions on the VHS releases. Yeah. Or next week, whatever, you know, she did a brilliant job of that at the, for the end of all the, all the last episodes of the uh, stories. Um, that was Ingrid's job um, to, to, to produce the, 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 the finished masters. Yeah. And Ingrid, Ingrid said, and Sue said, Look, well, how, how do we get the tapes? And, and Ingrid said, we tell them which story we want to release and they send us, and the archive sends us the tapes. So I said, so you don't have any control over what tapes they send you? And she said, no. And I said, okay, well, look, we have got a database yeah, yeah. of everything. We know where better quality stuff is that isn't even in the BBC archive. So <clears throat> if you want me to, we can produce your VHS masters for you. She said, how much will it cost? And I said, 
Well, we won't do it at Ace Editing down the road in Scrubs Lane. We'll do it at, at BBC Birmingham, the, 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 um, the tape masters, and anything that's on film, we'll do at um, Studios and Post at Television Centre. So it'll all be done internally BBC, it'll be tech-reviewed tech by BBC people, it'll just be the technical costs. Yeah, yeah. You won't even need to pay me. She loved this. And that, <laughs> and that basically, that's basically how it started. That's, that's, that, that, that fan letter moaning about Death of the Daleks is what started um, the restoration team looking after the I wonder, if, I wonder if the chap who sent it knows... Probably not. Yeah. Um, and then, and I don't know what happened, whether he got a letter of apology or, a, or a, he was sent something, I don't know. Um, but, um, and then what happened with DVD is um, Sue was in charge of DVD. Um, we, had a, we had an interesting conversation about, about the DVD releases. She wanted to put out a Doctor Who as one of the first six BBC DVDs, yeah, and wanted to know which one we should put out that that really showed off the um, uh, the format, the DVD format. Um, and I said that that actually the Five Doctors is probably the best example because uh, uh, the special edition because we'd mixed the sound into surround and with a little bit of extra funding we could make a five point a Dolby Digital 5.1 sound mix. Yeah. Well, um, but given that it was the most recent one that had been worked on, it's, I guess it stood to reason that that one would be the ideal choice. Well, maybe. I mean, you, we could have put out some Tom Bakers. I mean, I actually chose the second release, which was um, Robots of Death. And right, my reasoning yeah, yeah. was... It was a Tom Baker, um, and it was a Who Done It, and it was very publicly accessible as a story, um, and it was a great story. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think that was that was probably the right the right choice to make. It would have been it was either that or the Pyramids of Mars, um, one of those two. Yeah. And I, I decided on Robots of Death, and no one argued with me. You know, I mean. It was quite nice. They all, they all, <laughs> they all, they all, they all looked round the table and went, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I can't argue with that, really. That's probably the best choice, really. And, and that's so, were you heavily, yeah, were you heavily involved then in the in the whole process of Doctor Who being on DVD right through right from the very start? Yeah, we we basically chose the titles, and um, but because of the very high resolution of DVD compared to VHS, it needed a lot more care. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and a lot more expense. So, um, yeah, we're talking about 1999. And also, we'd wanted to do... The Five Doctors came out in 1999. They weren't going to do another one for at least a year. Um, it was going to be The Robots of Death. And I was saying, we should record an audio commentary. There's lots more we can do with it. We can do documentaries. We can do this. We could do that. They didn't want any of that, but I managed to persuade them to do um, a commentary. So the first commentary that we did was actually done. I think it was done in 1999. Really? Yeah. It wasn't. It sat on the shelf for a year, and it was just Philip Hinchcliffe and Chris Boucher and chatting Philip away Hinchcliffe, together. Yeah. 
Yeah, chatting away together. And there was know, just me and George Williams, just, just um, I produced it and George was just there. I've to, got to make a confession to you here, Paul. Go on. That commentary track, specifically that commentary track on that release is what got me back into Doctor Who after having, you know, how a lot of people have a period where they sort of fall out of love with the programme. Well, it was mm -hmm. the Robots of Death release and it was specifically sitting down and listening to Philip Hinchcliffe and Chris Boucher chatting about the programme that rekindled my flame. So there you go. <laughs> You're responsible for that. Very good. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that the BBC or Worldwide, um, as they were then, I think, just were not interested in doing any of this. No, yeah. They just wanted to put stuff out vanilla. And it was only because there was a very good reaction to, um, uh, to it yeah. that they started to think, oh, well, maybe we should do a bit more. I mean, they were so... They were so unaware of what they needed to do like for example they they said oh dolby dolby have given us permission to use the dolby digital um ident uh, thing uh, at, the, <laughs> at the beginning at the beginning of the uh, of the dvd and i said well that's great fantastic marvelous good okay um i said yeah so paul you'll need to um we'll send you the the, the digibeta and you'll just need to compile it onto the onto the master copy. And I said, okay, that's fine, that's not a problem. And they sent it to me. Um, and and I said, um, it's great, but where's the other where's the other tape? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've sent me the picture of the Dolby Digital ident thing, um, uh, but you haven't sent me the sound. And I said, oh, but the sound on the DigiBeta. And I said, yes, but we can't use that because it's a Dolby Digital ident i need i need the the, the six channel soundmaster to go with it they didn't understand what you know yeah, yeah. even the even the format you know it was, we had to kind of spell everything out all the way um so um so you know persuading them i mean getting anything out of them um really needed a lot of persuasion and then you wouldn't hear anything for two weeks and then they'd have a, a meeting about it and say well we could afford this and we could afford that um, and they come back to you and said yes you can do a commentary yes you can include that uh, film yeah. insert on it yes you can do this yes you can do that how did the first documentary come about then because i mean they started pretty small but they got much bigger pretty quickly yeah so um we we put little bits and pieces. Uh, uh, I think the Ark in Space. Um, we did an interview with Roger Murray Leach. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think we it, it happened very quickly. Um, I know exactly when we did it because uh, it had been arranged only the week before, and we were going to interview him on the 12th of September, 2001. And of course, we all know what happened the day before. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I, I remember, I remember um, Peter Crocker was here, uh, staying over at my place in Birmingham. And um, on, on September the 11th, and we were about to leave 
to go to Pebble Mill, collect the camera equipment, and then we were going to drive down, see Steve Roberts, crash there, yeah. and then and then head down the M4 to um, to see Roger, and uh, and Roberts rang about I don't know midday, half past twelve, and said you better turn the telly on, and of course it was all unfolding. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so it was quite a somber kind of journey down, and the, that whole period was all a bit weird. Um, but but we did the interview with with Roger, and he was fabulous, and um, and that went on, and that was just a little interview on its own, which uh, there were a few photographs. I'm not, I can't even remember if you put any clips in, but there were a few stills and some nice stories from him. So it was a nice thing to do, and we did lots of little things like that. Um, but the first kind of big documentary was uh, it was pitched by Ed Stradling, and various people knew we were doing working on the DVDs and were sending us ideas and various things and most yeah. of them were most of them were rubbish um, they were just people who I'm not going to mention any names but there were people who just thought they should be they should be doing something to do with the DVDs now that there was this new thing happening and there was new and there was potential they knew what the potential was but Ed had got a really good idea he was quite inexperienced he didn't work in television um, he was just an enthusiast, um, but he he what really wanted to do a documentary to go on Earthshock about the shock surprise of of the Cybermen appearing. Yeah, and um, uh, and he pretty much told it from the fan point of view as well, which was really good. So um, it was a really good. He had a really good idea. He he described how he was going to do it. Um, which was he did it really well, which you know was very interesting because he was not a program maker, um, and um, and produced a really nice uh, a nice film, and um, and that's how it came about really. And I think after that, um, I mean, it, I don't think it was the first it was the first one to to be commissioned actually, yeah. but it was the first one that kind of really ended up on the disc and was out there and was released. Um, and the response to it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, suddenly you've got to bear in mind that that um, there was Who's Doctor Who, there was Resistance is Useless, and yeah. what we, we all know was 30 Years in the TARDIS, um, and precious little else. Um, so a documentary about Doctor Who was quite a big deal and suddenly there was a possibility that you could have a documentary about every individual story so um, that was really exciting for us I mean it's a shame because there was no money to make any of this I mean we're talking about a few thousand pounds you know two or three thousand pounds to make yeah. something like that which is uh, I mean people listening might not realize but that is absolutely nothing in terms it's, of what it's, you... it's no I mean if you were to book a cameraman for a day you wouldn't get any change out of a thousand pounds because you but you're buying you're buying his skill you're buying his equipment you're buying his vehicle to transport it all in yeah um and then your sound recordist is is a minimum of 350 quid on top mm. so you know and then to edit it i mean i, I don't I, i'm not even going to tell you how much it is to edit these things in an avid <laughs> suite in soho it's you it's unbelievable so um 
So no, the only way it could be done was if people could shoot it themselves on their own equipment yes. and, and edit it themselves on their own equipment and have the skill to be able to deliver it to us uh, in, in a robust format that, yes. that we could deal with in a, in, a, in a broadcast edit suite. That's the only way it could be done. And it was the and only way it could be done for the, for the pittance that we had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was going to bring up the point here. There have been some criticisms that, you know, the team who were working on the DVDs, doing the documentaries and such like, you know, with the same names over and over again. But you've just spelled out the reason why that was the case. Well, well yes. And, um, uh, I mean, Dan Hall has said, oh, when, you know, when he started, there were lots of cliques and he wanted to get rid of cliques. Well, there were no cliques, really. Um, now, you could say, uh, well, there were, you, you say that, Paul, but there was, there was you, <coughs> there was you, there was, there was Ed Stradling, there was Steve Broster, uh, there was Steve Roberts working on the restoration, there was Peter Crocker doing restoration and doing some documentaries. Um, actually, that in, initially, and there was John Kelly, initially, that is the case, but none of those guys were being paid very much money. Mm. And everybody else who came along that, 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 that wanted to do something, and lots of people did, wanted to work on the DVDs. Um, John Kelly was one of them. Ed Stradling was one. They weren't people that were, that were part of a clique. We knew them as friends, but we knew lots of people as, as friends who yeah. wanted to try and get on board. Um, Brendan Shepherd was a guy who I didn't know, who um, who pestered me at, at, at the BBC in Birmingham because he worked in Birmingham, because he wanted to right. do documentaries on the DVDs, and I looked at our current schedule, and at the and at the people who I knew could deliver it, and I looked at him and I thought, well, in a million years that's not going to happen. Um, he might have the the ability to do it, but we don't have any slots free because we weren't doing that many. Um, yeah. titles either and so you know it, I'm sorry but it's, it wasn't really a, it's, it wasn't a fair criticism from, from Dan there weren't any, any cliques if someone had come to us and said I've got this fantastic idea as, as they did um, and I can deliver it because I can cut it and I can shoot it then we would have given them a fair crack of the whip George, yeah. William, George Williams did a, a film about the sea devils for us did a brilliant job of that um, he only did, ever did that one thing um, others who were who were tried out, not by me, but by Dan, did one or two, and not very much after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and others did some for a short period of time and then moved on for reasons which yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to talk about. So, um, and at the end of it, um, at, the, at the end of the range, Having gone through all of that, the only additional person, really, the only additional person that was that was new to the range, uh, was Chris Chapman. Oh yeah, pretty yeah, much, of course. Pretty yeah. much, um, pretty much. Um, the big change that was made was was moderating commentaries, having a That's moderator right, for yeah. commentaries with Toby. That it, I, I'm not convinced it was necessary for every title but it really made a big difference because I mean I did the commentary for the Aztecs and uh, 
you know, it was lovely to have all those people there, but really, um, it it was a it was a very steep learning curve that particular session. Yeah, and um, it was just not a great commentary. It really wasn't. And that was probably a particularly a problem. The older the story was, wasn't it? People's memories, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I thought Verity would be really sparky and knowledgeable, but there was another issue as well, and that is that that um, commercial rights weren't that interested in us speaking directly with the talent before the booking, because they thought that the talent might might want us to. Uh, might, might want to charge for the time in being briefed. Right. Um, and um, so I met Verity in, uh, uh, in the reception at um, Television Centre uh, with Carol Ann and Bill Russell. Mm. And um, Verity didn't know that Carol and, and Bill were going to be there. And had got a lot of makeup on because she thought she was going to be interviewed. <laughs> she didn't know she was. She didn't know she was doing an audio commentary. She thought she was doing something else. So <laughs> that kind of threw her. And and also she didn't know what she was doing a commentary for. Yeah, right. So it was it was very frustrating, and, and that was one I of the reasons. I suppose she's never done one before either. Anyway, had she? No, no. Well, none of them had. No. So it, it was all it was all a bit new and. You can't approach these things without without at least have watched recently watched the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you, you know you you can't. I mean, but there's then, a whole there's a whole book to be written about about how we made the DVDs. It, yeah, it, yeah. Um, because the stories that we could tell, some of which need to be told, uh, are genuinely incredible. Really. Um, all sorts of fascinating stories, you know, lovely, you know, there's some lovely stories I'd like to tell one day about um, doing, recording the Talents of Wayne Chime commentaries, because that was a fantastic day. Well, well one day. Another time. Yeah, that is going to, well, I, I've said this to you before off the record, that has to happen at some point. But Paul, time is marching on and you've got somewhere to be and we have still got a lot of stuff to get through. So uh, for the next <laughs> yeah. couple of minutes, I'm just going to throw I'm just going to throw one or two odd things at you just to get a few brief thoughts on maybe before okay. we move on to something else at the end. But OK, one of the things, um, you, well, the missing episodes forum, you're responsible for that pretty much, are you not? No, no, no. Oh, are you so, not? I've got the wrong no. end of the stick there. No, no. Well, the missing the missing episodes forum is run by Mark Brown. It's his baby. Right, um, right. And um, uh, a lot of people think it's my forum. It's I'm just the moderator of the forum. Right. Um, well, that's obviously where I've got it from. Other people. I'm not taking the blame for that at all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I'm happy to. I'm happy to kind of set there. I'm just a moderator, and there are there are there are many moderators. Um, uh, five, I think, uh, now. Um, Rob Moss is a uh, Stuart Douglas. Um, it's a, it uh, the, the missing episodes forum for me. It's it's uh, it should be a, a, it should be at its best um, a great place to discuss um, lost episodes and how to make the list of lost episodes smaller. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some really, really interesting discussions uh, going on all the time. And people contact the forum yes. um, with well, missing material. Well, we've got an obvious example to come, but I was just going to say, apart from the obvious example, does that happen very often? Yeah, um, a lot of people um, contact Mark Brown um, because he he's kind of the that's where the contact email goes yeah. to it goes to Mark Brown, and if it's um, if it's someone saying I think I've got a missing item or program or I what is this thing I have here, and it's a two inch tape or it's a one inch or it's a film or it's a quarter inch tape, then he'll normally send that to me and then I'll follow it up. Um, and um, some quite interesting things have, have come that way. A lady um, somewhere in London, I think it was in London, contacted Mark and, and said, I've got this tape, um, uh, Dr. Finley's case book. <laughs> right. And, and when it arrived, it was the sound recordist's quarter inch recording for the location shoot of a missing episode. So although we no longer have the final episode, we do at least have the sound rushes of, <laughs> of the location shoot. Um, sadly, the problem now is that there isn't really anywhere we can, where we can put that. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, there's, there's nowhere to physically put it. it. No. Yeah, I mean, the, tr the trouble is I, I have it. I have it here. And I'm not an archive, so at some point, I mean, I think probably the, the British Sound Archive or, is probably the place to put it, um, and uh, that's that's probably the safest place because it needs needs to be preserved. Yeah. For, at least until maybe that episode of Doctor Finley's Casebook can be found. Right. Another question for you. Okay, this is one that's uh, actually stirred up a bit of controversy. The power of the the power of the Daleks remount you did for victory of oh, the yes. Daleks. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, what happened was um, uh, Mark Gatiss uh, texted me, I think, and said, "Is there any?" He said, "Is there any any really unusual, rare Doctor Who?" footage of the Daleks, the stuff that hasn't been seen. And um, he should so, have known the answer to that question, really, shouldn't he? Well, <laughs> yeah, I was just pulling but you the thing, but the thing, no, but the thing is that that actually he knows he knows what we're like. Um, mm. If if we found something interesting, we would think about what DVD we could put it on, and we wouldn't tell anybody, so that when it appears on the DVD, people think, "Oh, flipping it!" When the, 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 yeah, it's got yeah, yeah. this amazing stuff on it, um, you know, people gave us a hard time over the over the William Hartnell interview. You know, I mean, we we didn't hide the fact that the William Hart we'd found the William Hartnell interview. We didn't hide, we didn't disguise the fact. We just didn't tell anybody. Yes, if yes, they want, absolutely. If anybody in the BBC could have found that film. <laughs> It was in the BBC archive. Yeah, yeah. So it just happened to be found in the BBC archive. So, you know, I think it's an unfair criticism that we held it back or we deprived people of seeing it. Any ah. programme maker could have found that film and, and put it on telly if they wanted to. Um, 
I think so, it's an absolutely fair thing to do anyway, you know. But yeah, but I mean, I mean people have have a go and they're entitled to have a go, but but just because you've got an opinion about it doesn't make you right. So um <laughs> So, so anyway, Mark knew that, we'd, that if we'd found something interesting, then we'd probably be saving it for, for an appropriate title. So, right, um, so that was my unfair criticism of him, really. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So, so, he, so basically, he wouldn't have known if we'd got anything because I wouldn't have told him. <laughs> it would have been a, would have been a surprise. Um, um, so I said, well, not... not featuring the Daleks really, what have you got in mind? And and then we had a we had a conversation on the phone and um and I and I said to him, well, if you want basically what he wanted to do was um in his script, The Victory of the Daleks, was a Dalek flashback. Now it's really important to note what this what he intended this to be. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't it had to be the the Daleks flashing back. It wasn't the Doctor remembering. Yeah. It was the Daleks thinking back. Um, and so it couldn't feature any any actors. Um, so um, so I, we talked about what we could use, and and he he said that he didn't really want to use. He didn't want to leave the job to people that didn't know the series because they'd just end up using kind of boring run-of-the-mill clips, mm. obvious things. Yeah. And he, th- he thought that with our knowledge that maybe we could, we could come up with something um, a bit more interesting. And, I, uh, and, and he said, of course, in an ideal world, what I'd like to see is, is um, uh, the Daleks on Vulcan in the Mercury Swamp. And so I said, well, I, I might be able to arrange that. <laughs> and he thought, <laughs> he thought I'd found Power of the Daleks, you know, <laughs> you know crazy. So for about, for about 30 seconds, he, he, he thought, oh, bloody hell, I've hit, I've hit gold dust here. Um, and I said, no, 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 we could, we, could, we, could, we could easily recreate that, easily, because it's a model shot and it's black and white. Um, and he, I said, what's the budget? He said, Look, there's no budget. There's no money for this, but if you can deliver me something, that would be great. And I said, okay, well, I said, I've got, I know where I can get some full-size 60s Daleks. I know where I can shoot it. Um, we might, I'll speak to someone because to make it authentic, we should probably shoot it on film, um, which we, we did and we, we did shoot it on film, but we also shot it in HD. Yeah, yeah. Um, on uh, on HD tape, um, and um, and so we kind of went ahead, and there were, we 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 tried to recreate a bit of Evil of the Daleks uh, with the head off one of the Daleks, someone inside, and and we'd seen the um, Tony Cornell's film, so we knew kind of how they how they'd done it. Yeah. So we put our hand hands up through this kind of gel thing, and it, it wasn't entirely successful. It didn't look that that, that convincing. Um, and um, then we did some stuff with because um, the Daleks were stored in a barn, and they were already covered in cobwebs. So we shot it, we lit it, and shot um, in the barn. 
and oh, then right, we cleaned yeah. the Daleks up. Yeah, then we cleaned the Daleks up and 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 did um, proper stuff with them. And then we we shot the um, the Mercury Swamp sequence. Um, and I made the um, the landscape sort of kind of double arch thing that you see in, in at the end of episode six. Um, it's really obvious in the telesnaps, which I use as the basis. And I cut that out of hardboard and painted it black. Um, and the background was just lit with this red um, psych. Uh, and then it was just kiln dried sand and tin foil at the front. <laughs> and John and John Kelly built um, the the melted Dalek. Uh, and the ice stalk was moved um, with a thread that went went up. Um, uh, through the middle of the Dalek, yeah, and yeah. so, and so, um, John is shooting on film. Um, I was doing the HD filming, and Andrew Beach is doing the moving of the eye stalk. Um, and it, it, I think it, uh, I think it looked pretty convincing. Um, I mean, people haven't seen the moving footage because it's not mine. You know, I, it's not mine to upload anywhere. It's the BBC's, but. Um, which is a huge shame. That would be well, something that would be. What we, we did also. We did. We did other stuff. We did. We did. We did other stuff with some Dalek models. We did um, a desert scene. Um, we did. We got some news footage, and we had a Dalek in Washington shooting down a helicopter, which John <laughs> Kelly did. It was. It was really nice. Um, and we, in, we, we had some, Kevin Davis sent me his rushes of 30 Years in the TARDIS, which has got a great right, yeah. shot, which, which interestingly includes a shot of Mark Gatiss, uh, except he's inside a Dalek. Of course he is, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the Emperor set. So there's a nice shot there, which we just made black and white. Um, and uh, made up the little sequence and I sent it to Mark and he asked for one change. Uh, it included some clips from uh, The Chase and from Dalek Master Plan. Um, uh, Mark made one little minor change. He just wanted to come off a, uh, a shot a bit earlier. Yeah. Uh, and then he, I said, where do I send it? And he told me where to send it, which was the tech people at um, Cardiff. I sent them the tape and that was the end of it. And then a little while later, he broke me the news that the director had cut the scene from the show. And a... it was no more. So that was that was it. That was it. Sadly. Well. But yeah. he, he said that he said what we're going to try and do is get it on the DVD, as Which... an extra. And I said great. But of course, it never ended up on the DVD. Um, no. So crying uh, yeah. shame to be. A yeah. But that is that is that is the the story of what happened. So yeah, there was there was only myself, uh, Andrew, um, and John Kelly. Yeah, uh, a mark that really knew about it. Well, that director's never worked on Doctor Who again, which is, you know, the only coder I can give you for that story, isn't it? Well, mm, I, I, I actually don't. I think actually there, there, there was a different story to that because I think he was a very good director. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just kidding, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that's karma. Right, one more quick one, and then we'll get into the very last thing, all right? The elephant that's been bugging us in the room. But but one more thing before we do. The Doctor Who 50th anniversary celebration at the XL. You were responsible for, well, a lot of what was going on there, weren't you? That's right, yeah. So, um, 
When I went, I went freelance from the BBC in um, at the beginning of 2012, and uh, I kind of wasn't really going to do any work for a few months um, just to get to work out what the hell I was going to do and how I was going to market myself as a freelance producer director. Yeah. And then out of the blue, I got a phone call from Russell Minton. And Russell is an uh, 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 interesting guy. He's, he's now a producer at BBC Worldwide. But then he was uh, a producer on Strictly Come Dancing. Um, and I knew Russell from BBC Birmingham. He's a big Doctor Who fan. And um, in fact, he'd been at the sound mix of the special edition, the DVD sound mix of the special edition, the 5.1 sound mix, uh, when he was on work experience at the BBC. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, and he was, uh, he, we became very good friends. And, um, and he rang me up and he said, uh, BBC, uh, no, a, uh, an events company is producing the Doctor Who uh, convention in Cardiff. This would, yeah, this was the one the year before, isn't it? Kind of a trial yeah. run, as it were. Yes. And um, they're looking for a producer, and they contacted uh, one of the producers here because they needed somebody with live experience. And yeah. she's not available, and so she's asked me because she's, I'm a Doctor Who fan, but I can't do it because I'm not available for the dates. Are you interested? If you are, I'll put your name forward. And uh, bearing in mind, this this was not, this didn't come from BBC Worldwide. Yeah, they yeah. were just looking for a producer. They weren't looking for someone that knew about Doctor Who. Um, and so I said, well, look, I'm not doing anything at the moment, and this sounds like a nice little gig. So yeah, I'll, I'm interested. And then a couple of days later, I got a phone call from this company. I went down to London to meet them. They they wanted to know what my rate was, <laughs> and I kind of knew I got the job, and also that 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 I was uh, underselling myself when I told them my rate, uh, because the guy that was running it, big smile up his face as soon as I told him what my rate was. So I was obviously <laughs> I was obviously affordable, and. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they gave they gave me the gig, um, and then um, and it was a bizarre, bizarre, bizarre coincidence, because the next person I had to deal with was, was Caroline Skinner, who I knew obviously, um, and um, so I was I had to have meetings at Worldwide um, for, on behalf of this company who were making this event uh, to talk about how we were going to do. Um, the convention at the, or well, not a convention, but the celebration at yeah, yeah. Um, the Millennium Centre in Cardiff. So I did that, and that was really successful. Um, and then the following year, by then, they I I knew those people, and they called me up again and said, "We're doing something much bigger now at Excel." Again, it was didn't come from worldwide; it came from. SME, Single Market Events, the company, the events company, yeah. and wanted some ideas from me. And I said, I said, okay, well, what is, what's the venue like, and what have you, what do you think you're going to do? And they said, well, we think we're going to do um, a, a big main hall, a huge theatre presentation, a 3D screening of Doctor Who in the evening for the 50th anniversary. Um, on a Saturday night, we're doing events at these other stages, 
and um, and we're doing stuff in uh, upstairs in the capital suites they called them I didn't know what they were but they were just rooms upstairs yes um, including a, the classic lounge which is all classic Doctor Who and live commentaries for yes. episodes um, and so they they wanted to know how we were going to how we were going to uh, provide the content what the content was going to be because they'd have to clear it um, and who I would get in to produce the stages. So, mm. um, so again, I mean, you know, let's go back to the cliques whole thing. <laughs> you know, who did it, who did I know who could do, who could deliver that? Well, an old friend of mine, um, Andrew Stocker from the Bristol Old Vic, works at the Bristol Old Vic, worked there for years. He pretty much knows everybody in the acting business. Um, so I decided, and also he's a producer, uh, stage producer, and I needed a good stage producer for stage two because that was mostly actors. And so um, I asked him to produce stage two. Um, stage one, I needed someone who was meticulous about timekeeping and perhaps a little bit anal about it. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, a lady that I'd worked with recently who I knew would, could easily do that job, a lady called Anne Sutton, I asked to do that. Uh, I'd worked with her on a series over the summer um, of, um, of 2012, so a year earlier. Um, and she thought it was a bit of a strange thing to, to be asked to do, but she did it. So, um, uh, so she produced that stage. Uh, I got Ed in to do yeah. the main stage, which was a big deal, really, for him. Ed Straddling, obviously. Yeah. Ed Straddling, yeah. Um, and all of these people had to be vetted by 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 the BBC in Cardiff as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and then John Kelly, because he'd done a lot of DVD commentaries, and they wanted to use Toby Haydock um, and Matthew Sweet uh, for interviews, yeah. for interviews, not commentaries. I asked John Kelly to produce the Classic Lounge and uh, I was going to look after the DVD commentaries. And then actually in the, in the event, I was just too busy. So Sue Cowley, who um, worked at the BBC, yeah. did um, the commentaries. And I also had to find um, our hosts. So they, they'd already used Barnaby Edwards the year before and really wanted Barnaby back. Um, I thought that Nick Pegg would be great as well. Um, so well, we they make Barnaby a great team Nick. as well. Yeah, yeah. They do make a great team. They're great. Um, uh, also, Steve Cranford, who I'd worked with before, who I've known for a few years, is a presenter, a radio presenter. Uh, Steve Cole, who I'd worked with, he'd been my boss at BBC Worldwide, but is a children's book author, he's a writer, um, he's great with kids and everyone's a big kid so I thought he'd be great. Um, he was suggested by Sue Cowley actually and I couldn't believe I'd not thought of him. Um, uh, then uh, Matthew, Matthew Sweet was a late addition. I really wanted Matthew but I wasn't kind of allowed to talk to anybody um, because there was, they, they wanted to get contracts and things signed. So I yeah, actually yeah. asked I actually asked Matthew if he'd be interested in doing it, um, 
at the press launch for the for the for Web and Enemy. Um, he was there. I, I expected him to be there, and um, I asked him then, and he was. He said, "Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course I'll be. Oh, of course I'll do it." Who wouldn't? Um, yeah. So um, so he did stuff on the main stage and whatever. So so yeah. So it was nice. You know, 2012. It was nice working with with Matt Smith and. Um, Caroline and Stephen and um, uh, that beautiful redhead. Gillen. Karen. Yes, Karen Gillen, yeah, lovely. And, um, uh, Jenna. and Arthur as well. Yeah, Arthur, yeah. yeah. Jenna. Jenna, I, were, I, didn't, I didn't have very much to do with the main stage at the right. XL. Mm. I just produced, I don't know whether you, you were there on the Saturday night, but I produced the, the screening, the cinema screening. Yes. Ed yes. did everything else in that hall, but I just did the cinema screening. Um, and, um, but I did work with Jenna and Peter at the, the Deep Breath launch, because I, um, I did the cinema yes. thing that was went around to all the cinemas um, uh, from right, the Odeon yeah, Leicester yeah. Square with... with um, um, that beautiful lady whose name I can't remember, Zoe Ball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did, did you enjoy the fiftieth then? That you know the event. Yeah, I mean it was it was crazy. Um, it's difficult because I think people forget actually, but but when you look at what actually we did over the weekend, there were seventy stage presentations. Yeah, I was going to say, I was just there on the Sunday, but there's so much going on. Every corner you turned, somebody was doing something else. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, about um, be a Cyberman, stomp around, um, or the photo booth or anything like that. I'm not talking about any of those things. Um, uh, I'm just talking about, really, the, um, the, the number of actors that we had. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like um, the Cardiff event where everything that happened was the same every day. No. Everything was different each day. Um, uh, it was certainly different each day in, in everywhere apart from the main stage. Even on, on the Saturday, that was different as well because there was Tom there on the Saturday. That's right. I missed that. And, and Joe Wiley was, was doing the main stage and not Matthew. Um, so... You know, um, that was all a bit mad and crazy, um, and and you know, booking people and you know, and it was. I was really insistent that we had Philip Hinchcliffe there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you pretty much had anybody who was anybody there, to be honest. At some point, we we tried. We tried. I yeah, mean, some yeah. people, some people just didn't want to go. I mean, I had to. I had to meet with um, um, Chris Bidmead, who I knew anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. To kind of try and... Pers I think he was a bit reluctant. And I said, well, look, why don't you come into the BBC and, and we can talk about it. Uh, and I was doing Stargazing Live at the time. And, um, and actually, he, 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 I think he just wanted to come in and see New Broadcasting House because he'd, he'd heard a lot about it and hadn't seen it. And then... Um, he came in and, and we had a coffee and and chilled out and had a we had a nice lunch together, um, and then Dick Mills came in as well. He was doing something around the corner, so he popped in 
and I just talked him through what we wanted from him and he was again chuffed a bit to to be to be involved with it and doing it you know so no it was it was it was good it was a great thing to be involved in oh hell yeah one other person who was there then to segue into our very last segment I guess is Phil Morris Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually, you, you know, you know, you know that live interview that he did with Lizzo Mazimba. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was on BBC News. Yeah. If you look, watch carefully, because um, I didn't know he was there um, until I, I was because it was done right by stage two. Um, I didn't know he was there, and I was walking through, approaching stage two, and I noticed some set up and realised that I was going to be walking straight through the back of shot. Um, and it kind of didn't matter, so I just carried on, you know. So if you watch carefully, you'll see me walking past. I have, well, uh, for the listeners, maybe, but yes, I'm well aware of the fact that you walked through that shop, or had noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Look, go. Well, let's I think that back was the to... first time I knew. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, let's go back to 2005. I've got a bunch of yes. questions, but we'll go through them pretty quickly. because you know, time is getting on, and you do have somewhere to be. 2005. He appears on the Missing Episodes forum, makes a post, yes. and, you know, some people say, oh, just another idiot who's got an idea that's going to go nowhere, and some people say, no, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. How did you get involved? Uh, it's quite interesting. I think he'd... Um, Ian Levine was a, had seen Phil Post. Yeah. And I think... I think Ian had wanted to speak to Phil and they'd had a conversation on the phone and then Ian sent me Phil's telephone number. So, um, uh, and then I called Phil, we had a chat and we met in Birmingham and that was it really. I mean, it, it, my impression of him was that uh, he, he wasn't someone that was bothered about ca capital letters or punctuation yeah, yeah 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 but but actually if you if you saw through all of that um he definitely had something to offer definitely without question it was a new he'd, he'd really thought about it he got it worked out exactly how he wanted to do it um he had an understanding of some parts of it but wasn't so hot on other things but was eager to learn about it and know right um and we became pals pretty quickly really um uh and really that that's it um we uh, i gave him richard moles would have made this big document yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, which which had been done for the bbc about doctor who sales around the world uh and i asked richard if he could make one for phil which he did um so we i gave that to phil um and um and that that was kind of it and uh, i think early 2006 uh he was back and forth you know he he was one of those um rig workers that spent a lot of time out of the country working all over the world yeah um but then then i think late in the middle of 2006 he was kidnapped yeah and um that was was uh, you know a big body blow, and I didn't really get to hear about it actually until he was released. Um, 
uh, had a chat with him and met a few times. And then yeah. we spoke a lot on the phone and he just grilled me. He just, he just grilled me for information. Um, and, um, and then he decided that he was going to then make a trip that was purely a, a, a research trip. And he yeah. was going to go um, to um, Zambia. Um, so um, I then arranged for him to go to Wimnall Road. I, I went with him. We went to Wimnall Road. Uh, I wanted him to see some uh, film cans, what they looked like, stuff that had come back from abroad. So uh, we had a good day at Wimnall Road. I wanted him to see some nitrate film. I wanted him to see some acetate film that had been uh, that had started to go over. I wanted him to see some vinegar film. I wanted him to get to have an understanding of what was there. Yeah. Now, sadly, they didn't have any nitrate film, although I was able to show him some nitrate later because I've got I've actually got a roll of nitrate in my garden shed. So um, <laughs> you you don't want it in the house because it could go off at any time, but it's fine in the shed. So. Um, uh, so basically, it was getting Phil up to speed with what to look for, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how... So with the kidnapping and him kind of getting coming to terms with that and then getting back into the swing of it and whatever, it was 2008 that, that he went and... Uh, yeah, sadly didn't find anything on, on his first trip, but um, made lots of contacts and that was a key... That was the key, really, to um, him finding the web of fear and enemy of the world. Yeah, no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, what was going back to when you first met him? Then, what was your impression of him as a person? What kind of a person did you? Well, you you know why I'm asking, but well, he was just driven. I mean, he he, um, he was someone who was very very confident, very articulate. Um, uh, he understood that he was unlikely to find anything. Yeah. Uh, it didn't phase him. He just wanted to get to the bottom of what had happened. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and he, wasn't well, he wanted anything. to do what everybody else who'd read that Doctor Who magazine winter special way back when had wanted to do, but he was the first person to come along with the wherewithal to do it, really, wasn't he? Basically, yeah. He... he, 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 he I mean, over the years, there have been lots of bullshitters, and he absolutely was not a bullshitter. I mean, you could tell straight away. Yeah. Um, he, he, just want, he just really wanted to nail it, and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And on, on occasions where, um, you know, he'd say, I need this information, can you get it? I'd say yes. He said, when, I'd say, when can you get it? And I'd say, I might be able to get it for this date and that date. He said, no, no, I need it tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, he would, and he would expect it tomorrow as well and, yeah 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 um you know he is he's, he's a he's a great leader of people if he wants to get something done he will get it done and he had there was absolutely in in my eyes no question that if he was gonna if he was gonna go out and, and look for doctor who uh, in particular or missing episodes in general and there were any out there to find uh, he would find them that's kind of how I felt. I mean, that's the confidence that he instilled. 
Um, so, um, yeah, he was a breath of fresh air. Ab absolutely. No question of that. Do you feel in the sort of 10 years since then, do you feel he's changed or do you think he's still the same person? He hasn't changed at all. Right. No. He's just, um, he's, he's just uh, a machine, really. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, he's a machine. He's 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 great. Yeah. So, okay, uh, the f the forums in the two years since Enemy and Web like to paint Phil as a bit of a you know a bit of a loose cannon, and well you know looking at some of the things he's posted on Twitter or whatever. Uh, do you think any of that's true, or do you think that? just because they've not met him in person and they've only seen, you know, what he's done on social media or whatever, do you think they've got the wrong impression of him? Phil kind of doesn't really care what people think of him. <laughs> um, and um, that's quite admirable. I mean, I I'm not particularly too fussed about what people think of me. Um, what I, th I think, uh, you know, I've, I've been looking for Doctor Who in particular and missing episodes for th over 30 years. Yeah. And uh, and I think people forget that we've been doing it quite a long time and that sadly we have not been that successful. We've been pretty successful, but it would be nice if we were even more successful. Yeah. And 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 so suddenly to to have somebody like Phil after 20 years come on the scene and basically shake things up a bit and say, I'm not taking over an answer. If it's out there, I'm going to find it and then goes and finds it. Well, you know, that's as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter what people think. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this, this might sound rude to some people, but it's just none of their business. Um, yeah, yeah. They're not out there doing it. He is. And uh, good luck to him as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it's his business what he how he does it and what he does, and it only becomes other people's business when they go into the shop and get the disc off the shelf. Completely. Um, look, I'm not going to talk about what he's been doing because I think that's his story to tell. So I'm not going to Absolutely. ask you where he's been and what he's done. But you know, somebody um, emailed into our podcast to ask this question, so I will put this to you. Does, how much does Phil keep you in the picture with what he's up to? Well, I, I don't really know where he goes. Right. Um, so, um, I mean, that's, that's not entirely true. Um, very early on, I knew all the places that he went to, yeah. exactly where he was, and there was a a lot of exchange of, of information and material at that at that stage um, and pretty much that kind of ended really when he'd pretty much covered all the countries of Doctor Who was sold to so um, and after that um, you've got to bear in mind that when he first went on his trip we didn't have the clearance history sheets for Doctor Who um, yeah, yeah. We didn't have them till the end of 2008, and uh, and some of them 
only started to get widely, widely they started arriving when he was pretty much almost finished and he was out there for, for over three months he was out of the country for over yeah. three months so um so i couldn't show him the sheets uh, uh, the, the clearance sheets i had to just send him the information usually by text um <laughs> wow. so i know and and um we we only had the email just did, kind of didn't work where wherever he was um you get you, you get the odd email um so once he'd pretty much covered most of where dot who had been sold to um then it then really it was it was just uh what my view was the, the areas that i thought ne- you know needed further investigation yeah yeah and um we didn't always agree on that um you know he he wanted to go back to nigeria and i really didn't think he should um he'd been kidnapped there um and uh i i i felt it was too soon for him he should forget about nigeria for the time being after all Ian Levine had said in 1984, there's nothing else there. If it was there, yeah. I would have found it. You know? um, and so, and we kind of believed that, but, but Phil didn't believe that because what he was finding on the ground was that what we've been told all these years was, was just not true. Um, that, you know, we'd, been, we'd definitely been told that the BBC had telexed all these places and there was nothing more to be found. Well, they did telex these places, but they never replied. These places never replied to the telexes. Right. Yeah. We weren't told. We weren't told that, um, and uh, and because he was finding more information out and building up lots of contacts, he was he built up a much better picture of how this whole system, bicycling and all of that, was working. Much yeah. better than any of us could do, sitting at our computers looking at stuff on the internet. He was doing on the ground and doing it. So, so he, he went to Nigeria against my advice and we, the rest is history. He found <laughs> yeah, yeah. what he found. Um, and, um, and he did that, you know, because of the research he did. Right. Yes. Okay. Million dollar question, Paul. I, I have to ask you, although, you know, but do you believe he's found more Doctor Who or more of anything? Is there more stuff to be revealed? Well, who knows? I mean, it's 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 that's his business really, and that's up to him. And um, if uh, I certainly think there's more Doctor Who out there, whether Phil has found more Doctor Who, I don't know. Yeah. And um, and I and I the, I only want to know about it when I can see it. You know. So, um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't anything else. And if tomorrow Phil rings me up and says, I think you should come up here, I've got some stuff, I will go up there, and if he's, if he's got some Doctor Who, I will see it, and then I'll believe it. Right, yeah. <laughs> but until I've seen it, I won't believe it. I mean, when he told me about um, uh, Web and Enemy, well, he first only told me about the Web of Fear um, and said, uh, he, he told me he'd got the films and would I go and check them over, which I did. And um, I mean, the most obvious 
thing about about it was that uh, there were five cans of film and not six, <laughs> which was a bit frustrating. Um, and at had that he stage, not, uh, he... just I was just going to say, had he just said the web of fear, he'd not mentioned that it was you know one short or whatever. He didn't mention that it was one short on the phone. Right. No, right. Um, I, it was only when I actually got up there that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Wasn't, yeah. It wasn't there, and um, and he didn't say anything about Enemy of the World <laughs> at all. <laughs> wow. Um, he just kept things very close to his chest because he realised that he'd, you know, to Doctor Who fans, it's kind of, I mean, they're all little holy grails, but but the Web of Fear is up there with with. Well, it's one of the know. bigger holy grails. Yeah, so. You know, he, he kept things very close to his chest, and I, you know, I absolutely don't blame him for that. It's exactly what I would have done. Um, exactly what I would have done. I mean, it's, um, you know, when um, Terry Burnett returned, um, Airlock and uh, the Underwater Menace. Well, well Airlock. Yeah. I wasn't going to say Underwater Menace. Airlock. Oh right. When he yeah, sorry. Airlock. Um, you know, the only people that knew about. Uh, knew about it were, were, uh, was Rafe Montague and, and Steve Roberts and Terry, uh, and and then they called me, and I called Phil, and um, and that was that was it really. That was the clique and Richard Moles of course. That was it. Um, nobody else. We didn't tell anybody else about it um, because we wanted to keep it secret. Um, yeah, but we thought the information would be useful for Phil. We thought knowing where it, where it was possibly from, what it was, might assist him in working out the journey. Basically, another yeah. another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Of yeah, yeah. The of how the system was working back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, um, and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, he was he was really, it was just as excited about it as we were, you know, and um, and he was even more excited by the underwater menace, you know. So, um, which was didn't come back at the same time, you know. It was another month or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later, you know. So, um, so no, it, it. I think the the. Um, uh, I think if there's anything else. Then um, you know he will, in his own good time, when the time is right for for, for a story to be told, um, tell the story, and um, and if that uh, if that includes the, uh, missing Doctor Who as well, that even better, fantastic. But um, it might not. Well, that sort of begs the question that some people have been asking. You know, two years it's been now, and, you know, personally, I've said this before, I wasn't expecting to hear anything for a good couple of years, or however many years it takes, because I don't think the world turns that quickly. But some people have, let's say, a bit less patience. Do you think Phil has... Because both you and Phil have said that at some point in this project, you know, all will be revealed, as it were, but we've not heard anything yet. Do you think Phil has legitimate reasons for not having, you know, made that revelation yet, as it were? Well, absolutely. I mean, he's still looking for <laughs> for a start. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could argue he'll never stop looking and therefore he'll never be able to tell the whole story. Yeah, um, yeah. 
but I think I think there will come a point where um, uh, he can tell the story. But if he's he hasn't told the story yet, and I'm absolutely convinced he's got there's a good reason for him to 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 feel that it's not the right time. And um, yeah, so you know that's that's his business. It's not it's not it's not mine really. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. And, you know, most of the other things I was going to ask are basically tied into what you've already said. I mean, I've always thought this, the the material that he has found, uh, you know, that we know about and the material that he may have found that we may get to know about, he, he, he definitely has the best interests of the material at heart. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about what he's doing, isn't he? Well, he's thinking about the culture. Yeah. Um, uh, what you've got to bear in mind and what he learned through the conversations that we had at the very beginning is that we've got a very, very narrow window of opportunity to save this content if it is still out there. Yeah. Very yeah. narrow. Um, as has been proven o over the last 10 years, with, you know, with, with the turmoil that goes on in the world, what's happening in Nigeria um, and other countries in that area, they all in places where he has been. Um, yeah. You know, it, this. You know, the world is a dangerous place, and um, a lot well, of this material yeah. is is there in in places that are dangerous places. So. Um, you only have to go back to your story about the reign of terror and what happened to the other two episodes of that to see exactly what you're yeah, talking well, about. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, when I when I found um, the, the three reign of terror episodes, it was almost exactly to the day ten years since the coup. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I'd been ten years earlier. I would have been only about, I don't know, I would have been a youngster, but um, <laughs> <clears throat> I would have been nine years old. Um, I wouldn't have been in a position to be able to save save the, the film. Yeah. But, uh, but you could argue that in, in 1974, it might not have been missing. The BBC may still have had it, copies, so... Oh, that's very true, yeah. <clears throat> you know, who knows? Who well, knows? a couple of short questions then do you think phil's the kind of person who would be transferring opening restoring stuff himself uh, doctor who specifically i suppose because you know one of the big rumors is that you know he's transferred and he's restoring all this doctor who material he's supposed to have himself is he the kind of person who'd do that hang on a minute my phone's ringing oh again do you want to ask that question again? Because the phone was ringing all the way through it. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Okay. So, on the subject of you know what Phil may or may not be up to, and what the forums think he may or may not be up to, one of the big things that often gets you know referred to on the forums is the fact that he's supposed to be transferring over to digital and restoring a lot of this Doctor Who himself. Is he the kind of person who'd do that? Um, no, um, I think if, if there's any, if he's got any film of any sort, um, he, you know, 
all film needs to be assessed. Uh, you know, I, I do exactly the same thing with the films I buy. Um, so uh, I don't have many films, but I will check each one and make sure that it's in a fit state. But um, on, the, on the two occasions where he had Doctor Who, um, you know, Web and Enemy, yeah, yeah. He got me. He got me there to check the films over, um, and he want and though he had definitely not touched those films. I mean, the Enemy of the World, episode four, fell apart as soon as I I unravelled it. Wow. Um, you know, and, and uh, it had been transposed, and you know, if anyone that would put that on a projector would have wrecked the film. So you know, he 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 knew because I said to him, no projectors, no steam becks, yeah, yeah, nothing, yeah. Mecha nothing mechanical, hand winding only, flatbed or a hand winder. And I had an upright hand winder. Um, so, you know, the, the, he, he wouldn't be doing um, his own transfers of anything like that. Um, and also there's the, the, the situation of copyright, which he's fully aware of, um, if you have something, um, piece of film, and you're a film collector and you own the film, that's fine. You can, you can put it on a projector and you can watch it, whatever. But you can't make copies. As soon as you make copies, you have basically broken the rules, if you like. Mm. Um, you've broken the law of copyright, and the material could potentially be forfeit. So, right, yeah. So, and we're not, uh, you know, it, it's. It's it's one of the um, one of the reasons why film collectors are particularly wary about admitting as to, to what they've got, and this all goes back to the the case against Bob Munkhouse. So, um, you know, Bob Munkhouse was taken to court. Um, the police confiscated his film collection, and um, he won the case, but he didn't get all his films back. And there was one particular film, which was a lost Buster Keaton film, which the police destroyed, and it was the only copy. Um, and ironically, he'd offered it to the BFI, and they'd said no, for oh. some reason. So, you know... I'm you, just shaking so my no, head not disbelief be, here, really. Well, look, we all, yeah. look, we all think this. You know, we all think this is a blooming nightmare that these things happened, but they did happen. Um, and it's one of the one of the things that that myself and particularly Phil is very is very very keen to prevent from happening in the future, if at all possible. So, um, you know, look, it's I don't think he's going to be making copies of things, um, but he'll be making think, sure that things are in a safe place if he's got anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay, one final question. More of a comedy question than anything, I suppose. So, it was part of the rumours and it never turned up. What happened to Marco Polo? No idea. <laughs> yeah, fair I, enough. I know, nothing, I know nothing about it. Um, I've no idea where the rumour came from. Uh, I've not seen any copies of Marco Polo. Nothing of the sort. Yeah, and the yeah. only, I mean, the only thing... Um, uh, what, what did happen 
I can't quite put my finger on the date. I have to give that a bit more thought. But, but what did happen was that there was a collector in Australia and who we were, were looking at as, if you like, a person of interest. Yeah. Um, who he said he got um, all of Marco Polo all of Power of the Daleks and all of Evil of the Daleks. Um, and he, he, his story changed a bit. I think at one point it was 17 episodes and then it became 19 episodes, I think. Where are we? Um, uh, that would be seven. Six and 14, 20. Yeah, it became, it was 19, I think, originally, then it became 20. Anyway, he said he had those, um, uh, those episodes. Um, and was interested in selling them, maybe, or maybe not, wasn't sure. And he wanted a ridiculous amount of money for them. And it just got to the point where, uh, it, really, he was just not believable. And we were, we were talking about that a lot. It was nothing to do with Phil. We were talking about that a lot um, uh, amongst the, ourselves, myself and 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 Steve and Richard. Uh, I mentioned it to Patrick Mulkern. Yeah. Um, Ian knew about it, um, partly because Patrick told him. Um, you know, <laughs> really? so, yeah. So, you know, um, when, when everyone else was talking about 90 in the Omni Room, I was really focusing on, on those, um, those Australian films. So it's possible that that you just know, sort of think, yeah it's possible it's possible i don't know um but as far but as i'm came aware of that, so no nothing came of it uh and i and i didn't really think that anything anything would come of it um but um his story was semi-believable at the time and the thing is you don't most of the time if if it's a if it's some kind of hoax or a wind-up or some room or whatever I can usually tell within a few minutes whether it it's a genuine yeah thing and I, I just wasn't certain with this story it's something I could, just couldn't rule out um, because you know for example we we first of all I didn't believe it because we knew that um, the power of the Daleks had been sent back from Australia along with Galaxy 4 and Underwater Menace. We knew, we knew that because we did the research, Damien Shanahan did the research and got the information. Um, so it wasn't possible for Power of the Darts to be in Australia. And then Damien went back and checked the transmission logs and realised that there had to have been two sets of prints in Australia of Power of the Daleks. But only right. one came back. <clears throat> so, um, so then that kind of changed our view. Maybe he does have it. Or maybe he doesn't, you know. But why has he got three complete stories? Because that never happens with private collectors. It just doesn't. Yeah. So, um, and, and even the keys, the keys of Mariners films that turned up, it, would, it were two out of six. It wasn't the whole set. So, you know... Um, no, it, it wasn't believable. So I think maybe it's possible that um, that, that kind of rumour of episodes in Australia may have um, 
sort of become conflated with the other rumours. Possibly, possibly. Anyway, Paul, you I've you're going to be late now because of me. So uh, no, I won't be late. Well, anyway, I'll let you get on because you've definitely got somewhere to be. But I suppose it just remains for me to thank you for that because that's been brilliant, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, well. Until next week then, uh, I was JR and we'll speak again soon. Uh